Good morning. You may have uh, heard me mention a couple of things that you didn't know about in the prayer, so I thought I'd, by way of introduction, explain what was going on. Uh, I was, in fact, the only pastor of this church that was here in town over Friday and Saturday. The rest of the gentlemen went up to Toledo, Ohio, to speak at um, uh, a conference. In fact, they put on, in Toledo, the very same conference that we did here in July. It was the I Believe in God the Father Almighty conference, and so our pastors went up there and and spoke. And um, the other thing that I mentioned in the prayer that you may not know about is this uh, scandal that has just kind of come out in the news uh, about Dinesh D'Souza, who was, until very recently, the president of King's College in New York City. And this is of particular interest to this body because um, David Talcott was a man who lived here with his wife and his family for many years. He was studying, uh, he was a PhD candidate in philosophy at Indiana University, and he was hired by King's College just a couple years ago. And so he and his family lived there, and so our hearts are with them now. Uh, But what happened uh, is... uh, uh, President Dinesh D'Souza has recently resigned his presidency of King's College after World Magazine broke the story that he, a married man, had been introducing a young woman, not his wife, as his fiancée at a conference he spoke at. Now, I uh, took the time to take a look at his blog to sort of see what his response to this brouhaha was, and his response, and I quote, is... Denise and I, and this is the lady that, uh, not his wife, but who he's apparently engaged to, um, and I were trying to do the right thing. I had no idea that it is considered wrong in Christian circles to be engaged prior to being divorced, even though in a state of separation and in divorce proceedings. Obviously, I would, have, I would not have introduced Denise as my fiancé at a Christian apologetics conference if I had thought or known I was doing something wrong. But as a result of all this, and to avoid even the appearance of impropriety, Denise and I have decided to suspend our engagement. Right. It's funny. Um, That's about the only proper response, uh, um, is laughter. Later in his response, D'Souza asks the following question. So why would World Magazine write such a misleading, sensational story that we would normally expect from the tabloids? Now, I'll leave you to read the articles in World and his blog and whatnot to see if they wrote anything misleading or whatever. That's, you, can, you can do that. Um, but he asked the question, apparently, with all sincerity. And so, with equal sincerity, I'd like to ask Mr. D'Souza the following question. What exactly could possibly be more sensational than reporting that the president of a Christian college, a married man, has been introducing some other woman as his fiance at a conference about Christian apologetics. As my, as my dear father-in-law might say, it boggles the mind. Now, I start with this story today um, because we here in Bloomington, far away from the bright lights of New York City, uh, look at the situation at King's College and think, wow, those guys are crazy, those guys are nuts. But the truth is that we are not very far from the very sin that has entangled Dinesh D'Souza. If you read his statements on his blog, you're tempted to think that the guy is insane. But we're not far from that type of insanity. 
sin and fear and doubt have a way of clouding our minds and our hearts so that we can no longer hear or understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sin deadens and calcifies our hearts so that we're no longer tender of conscience. This is just as true in Bloomington as it is in New York City. In the same way, there is no end to the heretical theology of proud men who want to justify themselves. Jesus said that the Pharisees, who were hypocrites, would travel around on sea and on land all over the world just to make one convert. And when they found one, they would make him twice as much a son of hell as themselves. In the same way, a proud man who is not content with the pure milk of the word of God for himself will not be content for others to have it either. Now, in our passage today, Paul warns the, the church at Colossus not to fall prey to heretical teaching about the person and nature of Jesus Christ. We need to listen carefully to his warning today, lest we ourselves fall. We need to understand who Jesus Christ was and why it matters for us. Please read al- or follow along with me um, as I read, either in your Bibles or on the screen behind me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full knowledge of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." I say this so that none, no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude." See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority, and in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Now, in our passage today, Paul encourages, urges the Colossians to be strong in their faith. He wants them to have a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say that all The treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus Christ. Now that's actually quite a bodacious statement. If you go to the campus of Indiana University, 
uh, and you say something like that in one of your classes, you will meet some opposition. You'll either be laughed at or scorned or maybe argued with, but you'll meet opposition. And so we have to ask ourselves, is it true? Are all treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden Jesus Christ? Well, of course it's true. And Paul doesn't back down from the claim. Far from it. He wants the Colossians to see and believe that it's true. He's concerned for their spiritual well-being and... um, And he repeats a warning to them twice in this passage that we just read. In verse 4, he explains that he does not want anyone to delude them with persuasive argument. Then, in verse 8, he doubles down on his warning, and he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Now, For you to pay attention to these warnings, severe as they are, uh, you must first be convinced that what you believe actually matters. This isn't so easy as it seems, even in in a church such as ours. We uh, theoretically hope to take the Word of God very seriously here, but the truth is that we live in a postmodern culture, and so we, this congregation, struggle against the tide of our culture and have to be aware of it. Now, a common thread in our postmodern culture, uh, or as I alternately refer to it as, is POMO culture, is not so much that we lie on a regular basis, although that is very true. One of the hallmarks of postmodern culture is that uh, we lie constantly. But that's, that's not, that doesn't really get to the heart of, uh, of postmodern culture. It's more accurate to say that our POMO culture denies any, tru- any difference between truth and falsehood. Or, as a relativist would put it, we say that what is true is not defined by some objective outside standard, but by how it is perceived by culture and society and so forth. So what is true is in the eye of the beholder. Now, many of us here are either outright postmoderns or, if not outright, then filled with many postmodern beliefs. And I can say this confidently for at least three reasons. First, it's only in this kind of relativistic postmodern culture that Dinesh D'Souza, a self-proclaimed evangelical, the leader of an evangelical college, no less, can get away with saying things like, He had no idea that it is wrong, considered wrong in Christian circles, to be engaged prior to being divorced. Right? It's crazy. It's only in this postmodern culture that he could say back in 2010 when he was hired by King's College um, that, quote, I'm quite happy to acknowledge my Catholic background. At the same time, I'm very comfortable with Reformation theology. He acts as if Reformation theology and his Catholic background are not at all at odds, as if they're perfectly compatible. Um, this, of course, the truth is, of course, that, Protestant Ref- that the Protestant Reformation was a movement that defined itself in opposition to Roman Catholic theology and teaching. It was a movement, uh, th- and indeed, last time I checked, neither the Roman Catholics nor the uh, Reformed types have budged in their in their beliefs. But this is the way we are. We say things that are completely contradictory and nonsensical, and yet we pass by them without even a a blink. 
Second, I'm, I, I know that we struggle with postmodern culture because we're constantly tempted to believe that there's actually no connection between what a person believes and how he lives. We believe that it's, uh, we believe it because it's the line we're fed in our culture all the time. <clears throat> the pressure in our culture is to confess that a Mormon, a Muslim, a Christian, a Hindu, and an atheist can all be good people. Their beliefs may differ a little, uh, but it all comes out roughly equivalent in the end. It all sort of comes out in the wash. And so we go along with it. We're eager also, as Christians in particular, uh, I, I know that we believe this, that there's very little connection between what people believe and what they do, because of the way we handle sin in our churches. Rather than confronting a brother or sister in Christ with sin, we act as if sin doesn't matter or as if it's something that can be brushed under the table and that it has, bears no relation to their testimony of their, their Christian faith. In fact, it's one of the greatest sins, you might say, in the modern evangelical church today is to actually go up to somebody and question their faith. This is something that's verboten. More to the point, perhaps, what's verboten is for us to even question our own faith, Right? Uh, Christians in evangelical circles uh, have committed some kind of terrible sin just by asking themselves, am I really a, a Christian? So we, unlike our forefathers, tend to think that there's no necessary connection between what I do and what I say I believe. It doesn't really matter whether I give myself all week every week to looking at pornography or lying or uh, being angry with my children or, or whatever, uh, that bears no relation to whether or not I'm a Christian. Now, our church's bylaws contain a passage that I love very much, and I take a, every opportunity I have to go over it with the inquirer's class uh, every quarter. And it provides a good response to the chasm between what we say we believe and what we actually do. It says, godliness is founded on truth. A test of truth is its power to promote holiness according to our Savior's rule, by their fruit ye shall know them. No opinion can be more pernicious, and I'll stop here. Uh, can someone just shout out, what, is, what does pernicious mean? Just go ahead and shout it out if you know what it means. Dangerous, right? That's, that's good. It's not... It also means sneaky, right? Harmful or dangerous, but in a sneaky way. So, um, no opinion can be more pernicious or more absurd. That is to say, no opinion can be more sneakily dangerous or harmful or more insane than that which brings truth and falsehood upon the same level. On the contrary, there is an inseparable connection between faith and practice, truth and duty. Otherwise, it would, it would be of no consequence either to discover truth or to believe it, embrace it. If there is no difference between truth and falsehood, then there would be no value in trying to learn the truth. On the contrary, Jesus said that others will know whether we are in the truth by examining the fruit of our actions. What you believe will determine how you live, guaranteed. That is why... I want to labor on this point of who Jesus Christ is and, and what he has done for us. Because if we don't get this right, we will not get anything else right. Uh, 
Now, third, I want to, I know that we've been infiltrated with postmodern beliefs because we don't believe that words will ever hurt us. This is true, very much true in, in evangelical churches today. We think there is no danger in the company we keep or the books we read or the media, the music and the movies we consume. We quickly become impatient with those who argue over theology and ethics. We say, what's the big deal? We think we're strong enough to attend any class or graduate workshop, to read any book or movie that the university throws at us. Uh, We're strong enough in our faith to read any heretical book we want. But Paul is no postmodern. He knows that we can be utterly destroyed by words, and and so he labors to warn the Colossians about false teaching. He says that we need to be on the lookout, otherwise we'll be taken captive. The the passage, uh, the word taken captive is like uh, being plundered, right? So you can have the image of perhaps uh, Vikings plundering a village, right? This is the imagery that Paul is using to, to talk about people who are using words to take you captive, you and I captive, not by carrying us off, but by their words, by what they say. <clears throat> Paul knows that we can be destroyed by words, and so he warns us. He commends the Colossians, uh, the Colossians for remaining steadfast in their convictions. Now, the particular truths in this passage that Paul concerns himself with concern the identity and nature of Jesus Christ, as I said. There is no knowing God without knowing Jesus Christ. 1 John 2.23 declares, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Paul knew that a primary way in which Christians would be led astray would be by denying Jesus Christ in one way or another. I want to highlight today three different ways in which the truths in Colossians 2 are denied by three different religions. I'm only picking three ways, and there's many, you know, there's a million different heresies out there. If you want to learn more about them, talk to David Canfield after the service. And uh, in fact, uh, perhaps as an exercise in small group today, you can look at this passage and think about various other uh, heresies that, have, that are opposed to the teaching in this, in this chapter. Uh, you'll find many. But I'm just going to pick three and, and uh, urge you to be warned about them. First, I'll, I'll jump off from uh, the line that says, See to it that no one takes you captive according to the tradition of men. Now clearly, Paul here has in mind the Jews of his day who were trying to convince the Christians that they were required to live according to the Mosaic law. It says further down in chapter 2 that these things were a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The types and shadows of the Old Testament, that is to say the ceremonial observances of the law and the system of sacrifices and on and on, were, given to, were, were supposed to give way to Jesus Christ, who was the real deal. All of those things pointed to him. Now, to get an idea of how bad it is for the, for the Jews at the time to reject Christ and to say that instead people needed to follow, continue following these ceremonial observances, think of, imagine a man and his fiancée. During that time of being engaged, a man and his fiancée may very well spend a lot of time on the phone and um, maybe write letters to each other and so forth. 
They don't live together or anything like that. They're not physically intimate, um, but they do these things to communicate with each other and, and uh, to be involved emotionally with each other. Well, um, it would be perverse if at the end of that engagement period, the, the, the man and his wife never decided to move in together, never decided to consummate the marriage, uh, but instead just continued to write letters and talk on the phone, right? Um, it would be, it would, what was appropriate for one time not only becomes inappropriate for another time, but is downright insulting. You know, imagine a husband or a wife saying to uh, his bride or, or, or her groom, honey, we'll just keep writing letters. It's just as good, right? It's not, it's offensive. It's, it's awful. Uh, the real thing has come. And, and, uh, and the Jews, just like us today, were to, grab a hold of it in Jesus Christ. Now, I'll briefly add that this error, this is the same error, in, at least in part, uh, in, to what G- Pastor Bailey was addressing in his sermon last week. Last week, uh, Pastor Bailey talked about the way that we have all these many laws that, we, that we're theoretically supposed to follow these days regarding what we eat and the cars we drive and so on and so forth. Um, in order to be good Christians or good citizens of this country or whatever. Um, instead of uh, faith in Jesus Christ, we have countless numbers of other things we must do in order to be righteous. We're supposed to drive environmental, we're supposed to be environmentally friendly. Uh, we're supposed to buy new car seats the day the old ones become expired. We're supposed to eat only the food prescribed by the latest health fad. Uh, and on and on and on. It's the same basic religion. Like the Jews before them, our modern lawgivers come up with all these things that we're supposed to do. Do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. Paul responds, forget about it. Instead, he says, these, matters are, uh, which, these are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Okay? <clears throat> so that's the first way that we are taken captive away from Christ. Rather than looking to Christ for our salvation, uh, we look to all these little laws. Right? That's one way that we can be taken captive. The second way that I'll mention um, comes from the line, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now, this country is getting a crash course in Mormonism thanks to the elections this year. Uh, the pressure, of course, is on everyone to proclaim that Mormonism is within the pale of Christian orthodoxy so that we can secure a Republican president to the White House. Billy Graham and his association, of course, have uh, removed any reference to Mormonism from their website. Um, and you'll find many other organizations doing similar k- kinds of things. Well, if you haven't been told already, let me be the first to break it to you. Mormonism does not fall within the pale of Christian orthodoxy. It's not even close. The difficulty is that they use many of the same words and phrases that are very familiar to evangelical Protestants. They work very hard uh, to look like Protestants. They even claim the name Christian. Uh, There's a Mormon building on 3rd Street... uh, West 3rd Street by the Orchard Glen Apartments that many uh, folks live in. Uh, And it looks, if you've ever seen it before, it looks exactly like a Southern Baptist church, right? It looks very similar. 
um, <clears throat> it's clear that they want you to agree that there is very little difference between them and Protestants. But the devil, as it were, is in the details. The key, as I said, to getting a grasp on Mormon theology is to understand that they will use the very same words that you do, but they'll, they'll mean very different things when, when, you say, when they use them. A Mormon, for instance, is happy to state uh, that he believes the gospel and, the, and, and that Jesus Christ died for his sins. Right? Sounds perfectly good. He's happy to agree with this passage here in Colossians, which says that, Christ, that in Christ... All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. The key is to ask him what he means by that. Mormons believe that Jesus Christ has become God, has become fully divine, but they don't believe that he always was that way. In fact, they believe that we all have the ability to become fully divine, to become God, God or gods, I guess, uh, and share in Christ's divinity. Jesus, in that sense, according to Mormons, is no different than you or I. He, like us, is a child of God. According to Mormons, all humans start out in a pre-existent spiritual state before they become humans and take on flesh. We all have the opportunity to take on full divinity, but we must go through this period of testing here in this world. If we pass the test, if we live right, We'll be able to graduate into heaven, become a god, and, and be just like Jesus. Mormons will indeed therefore claim that Jesus was fully God. They will also claim that all the fullness of deity dwelt in him. And this is, you have to understand again what they mean by that. Because um, Jesus, according to Mormons, was the firstborn son of God. And he was so good that he became fully God before he even had to go through this testing period on this earth. So he was God before he even got here, right? And so that's why they can say that while he was here even, he was fully God. So you see, they're using the same words that we're using, but it, they mean completely different things by them. This is, they're not talking about the same Jesus that we're talking about here, right? Eternally God from all time past. Eternally begotten Son of God. This is the Jesus of, of Scripture. So that's another way that, uh, that we need to be on guard so that we're not taken captive. Third, uh, I want to mention uh, one last error, one last religion. Um, and I want to jump off the, the phrase, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. <clears throat> and let me read that uh, more fully. Uh, it says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt concerning of the, concerning, consisting of the decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Speaking about Jesus and his work on the cross uh, to save us from our sins, of course. Now, this last religion I'm going to mention is Islam. They, too, uh, say a lot about Jesus, and in fact, much of what they say in the Quran uh, about Jesus is actually true. For instance, uh, they say that Jesus was born of a virgin, Mary. We also believe that. However, Islam vehemently denies the divinity of Jesus Christ. For Muslims, Jesus is not God to be worshipped. 
Instead, he is literally the perfect man. They refer to him, in fact, as the second Adam. Again, using a term that Protestant Christians use, but in a very different way. They refer to him as the second Adam, the man, the second man who was perfect. And the man who we must be like. And of course, their telling of uh, Jesus' life and so forth are very different, is very different. Muslims deny the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They deny that Jesus ever died. They deny that he, had the bil- that he has or, or had the ability or right to take on the sins of the world. On the contrary, according to Muslims, each man must bear the reproach for his own sins. Radically different than what we believe about Jesus. <clears throat> now, this teaching that we ought to take on the responsibility for our own actions sounds very pious, right? It's something we say regularly in this life, right? We say we need to take responsibility for our actions. But, and so it appears pious. But when, it, in fact, in relation to God, this teaching does nothing except puff us up and make us think highly of ourselves. Scripture teaches that Christ, that God in Christ came down to earth to save us. God reached down to save us. We don't reach up to God to be saved by him. We don't ascend to God in our own works, in our own righteousness. He reaches down and cleans us by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We don't please God with our goodness and moral excellence. God himself cleanses us with the blood of our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. These are simply three common errors, and you can find out many more, uh, of course. Uh, Contrary to these teachings, Jesus is God in the flesh. Uh, We are not God, cannot become God, will always be the creature He will always be the creator. Um, So Jesus is God in the flesh and he has taken the wrath of God upon himself so that you may receive God's grace and forgiveness and love. It is only through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that we can know God and be right with him. Listen again to these glorious truths from the passage. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And skipping down, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross." Who do you need aside from Jesus Christ? This is, this is what Paul is giving to you. He's giving to you Jesus Christ, the unadulterated truth. My desire for you this morning is to be, uh, is for me in a sense, to be like the angel that comes to Mary in the garden. Or uh, <laughs> you remember the story. Jesus, or Mary goes back to the garden and the tomb is empty, right? And she's weeping. Because she cannot find the body of Jesus. She says to the angel, They have taken away my Lord, and I know not, and, and, and I 
know not where they have laid him. Right? These, these various teachings, these various doctrines are seeking to take away Jesus Christ from us. I don't want them to take away the Lord from you. I don't, I want you, I don't want you to be plundered. I don't want us to be plundered. I want you, like Mary, to declare to the world, I have seen the Lord Jesus Christ after she had, in fact, seen him. Now, in our postmodern day, we think that doubt is a good thing. We think it's honorable for a man to change his mind all the time. On the contrary, Paul commends the Colossians for the stability of their faith. Paul taught, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. What I want you to see as we close is that there is a world of difference between uh, the way that Christians approach doubts and questions and the way that the world, the postmodern, approaches doubts and questions. A doubt is like a fog that comes over your brain and it likes to bring along its old friend, fear, right? Doubts and fears kind of go along together. And the difference between uh, the postmodern and a Christian is that we don't embrace doubt as of some sort of positive good, you know? We don't just sit in it and stew in it. Um, we, we have doubts, we may have doubts, we may have questions, but we ask our questions looking for answers. A doubt, you can ask a question as a, in the form of a doubt in such a way that you're not really looking for an answer. That's, that's faithless, that's godless. We ask our questions with faith, trusting that God will provide for the answer for us. So Christians may have doubts and fears, uh, but we seek the, the truth. And indeed, Paul gives us in this very passage a true test of, of faith in the phrase overflowing with gratitude. One of the main differences between someone who's postmodern and just stewing in his doubts and questions is that he's constantly filled with angst and has no time to be thankful because he's worried about his ulcer all the time, right? But the Christian overflows with gratitude because he sees what Jesus Christ has done for him and is filled, like Mary, with wonder and thanksgiving. Now, as I end today, I'll I'll just mention that there are, of course, countless churches throughout history who have not stood the test of time, and they have allowed false teaching to creep in, and eventually these churches crumbled. In fact, in in chapter 2, verse 1, they mention the church, Paul mentions the church of Laodicea. That very church is, is mentioned later in Scripture in, in Revelation chapter 3. It says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the, cre- of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Apparently, That church did not stand the test of time. They had been plundered by those seeking to take them captive. The condition of the Laodicean church is sad, is a sad, sobering reminder to us of what can happen if we let our guard down. Don't kid yourself. What you believe will always determine how you live. And scripture does not lie. We will reap what we sow. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you 
so much for your word and for the way that it makes provision for us. We thank you for this warning that you have given to us. We pray that we would take heed to it and that we would pay attention to these doctrines that seek to carry us away. Help us, Father, to stand firm in the faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.